Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. And I wanted to mention that if you would like to connect with me directly, you can always do so at MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. I see and answer every single contact personally, and I would truly love to hear from you. Welcome back to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Alan Eaney is a partner, director, and the global leader for creativity at the Boston Consulting Group. He's also the author of Thinking in New Boxes, a new paradigm for business creativity, a book that Publishers Weekly has called a must-read for anyone in a leadership position who dares to look at the world in new ways. Alan speaks around the world about how to bravely bring fresh thinking to daily challenges, how to think more expansively about the future, and how to build an uncertainty advantage in challenging times. Please welcome the very brave breakthrough thinker, Mr. Alan Eaney. So this is going to feel like, I hope, like we're having a coffee in New York. We did meet in person very briefly when you spoke at the Rotman School of Business, and that's how I first was introduced to your work. So I am excited and thrilled to have the one and only Alan Eaney with us today. Alan is in the creative camp for business, and so I'm really excited about our conversation. Welcome, Alan. Maybe you could just in your own words, tell our listeners who you are and how would you describe what you do for a living? Well, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this very much. And I do remember that day at Rotman. It was about a decade ago, hard to believe, but uh, very, very shortly after my book came out. So I've been with Boston Consulting Group for 20 years and one month on the day we're recording this. Um, It's a bit of a shock to anyone who knew me 20 years and one month ago. But, um, you know, I started out on the traditional track here, helping a lot of clients with a lot of challenges, but somehow kept coming back to the world of creativity. Um, I can go and introduce myself now as BCG's global creativity guy. I work with clients really across every industry around the world on how to think in fresh ways about the challenges they're facing. And somehow this, this ideal job that I've concocted for myself over time builds on so many things from my past. I have music in my background. I have choirs in my background. And the idea of of running workshops with clients and helping facilitate tricky meetings is just something that I love to do. So anyway, it's maybe a rambling answer to a simple question, but a good start, perhaps. Oh, it's a fabulous start. And there's no such thing as a rambling answer. It's It's all phenomenal information. You mentioned your book. And yes, in fact... The story of the book is when I went and met you at Rotman, that (laughs) can't believe it was 10 years ago now, I got a signed copy or you signed my copy of the book, which I then took up to the cottage and my sister-in-law borrowed and loved so much, I've never seen it again. So I'm going to have to get that back from her. But let's talk about your book. Your book is entitled Thinking in New Boxes, A New Paradigm for Business Creativity, and was published in 2013. So yeah, hey, 10 years ago. Exactly. You wrote this, Alan, with Luc de Brébander, who I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. If I'm not, please correct me. 
I'm sure he'll forgive you. Luc de Brabander, he's Belgian and uh, a, a fantastic friend. And your French is beautiful. Well, I grew up in Montreal. <laughs> of course you did, because I saw that in your history you had gone to McGill. So I thought, okay, this is why your French is so beautiful. So tell us a little bit about the book. It's still out there. It's still sort of a go-to, must-read for anyone in a leadership position, according to Publishers Weekly, who reviewed it. Tell us a little bit about this book, because I got through some of it, but then it got stolen. Ah, with pleasure. Sure. Look, the book in some ways has replaced my business card, except it's a little bit heavier and, and, and all the rest of it. But, <laughs> but the general idea is this. For decades, people have been exhorted to think outside the box. Think outside the box. If a box is a mental model, and by the way, we all have many, many boxes that we use all day long. You know, in the business world, it's this is who my company is. This is what we do. This is how we think of the competition. This is how we think of the customer. This is how we work together. All of those are mental models, but we use them all day long in our personal life too. You know, this is how to raise a child. This is how we think about religion or democracy or whatever you want. Um, this is how to take an elevator. Any of these things are, are mental models that we use to simplify the world around us. And if you say, think outside the box, that's basically like saying, well, your existing boxes are no good. Your existing way of thinking is no good. But it's not giving you any guidance as to what to do instead. And so the whole reason we called it thinking in new boxes, the basic logic here is you need to find useful new boxes for whatever challenge you may be facing. If instead of just trying to come with new ideas, new boxes, you start by trying to understand your existing ones. What are my existing assumptions? What are my current, especially the hidden implicit ones? What are my current ways of thinking about the world? If I can actually surface some of those, get them on the table, and maybe think which of them might be ready for a change, that is a beautiful way to get started, and, and we can get deeper into all of those things. Fabulous. So do you have a story at this point, Alan, that you're able to maybe share providing an example of this? You're right to ask, because everything I've said so far about mental models and boxes is, is much too theoretical. Let me give you a really simple example. The world of low-cost airlines. Um, when I say low-cost airline, if somebody lives in, in the U.S., they might immediately think of Southwest or Spirit or, or in Europe, Ryanair and EasyJet or whatever it is, whatever country you live in, you're, you're, you've got something in mind. But 60, 65 years ago, none of those existed. So... How did Southwest create the first one and then came Ryanair and all the others? Well, the oversimplified answer to that, because I love to oversimplify things, is they listed and challenged some of the mental models inherent in the mind of everyone in the airline industry. So everyone would have said, we need many different types of planes, big planes, small planes to serve different routes. Southwest said, no, we're going to have one type of plane. Okay, that's interesting. It's not enough yet. Everyone in the airline industry would have said, we use travel agents. Well, we're not going to use travel agents. We have assigned seats. We're going to have open seating. We have all-inclusive pricing. No, we're going to have unbundled pricing and charge extra for everything. We have a hub-and-spoke model. No, we're going to have a point-to-point -point network instead. We fly to the main airport near the big city. No, we're going to fly to the secondary airport out of the way because it's, it's cheaper and on and on and on. And it's all of those shifts in mental model together that led to this whole new business model of the low-cost airline. Love it or hate it. But the point I'm making 
I will often start with this. If I'm running a workshop with a client, I will often start with this low-cost airline example and say, okay, now let's come back to our challenge. Let's come back to our problem in the same way that for low-cost airlines, I just gave you a bunch of really simple from-to, from-to shifts in mental model. What about our challenge? What about our mental models, our business, our issue that we're trying to tackle? What are some from to some simple but fundamental from to shifts that might be possible in our situation? And, you know, you don't necessarily solve the problem uh, with that five, 10 minute warm up exercise, but it's a beautiful way to open the door, to light some sparks, to get new possibilities to be to be at least uh, within the realm of possibility, frankly. Fantastic. I don't think I've heard you use, at least when we, we met at Rotman, I don't think I've heard you use that low-cost airline example. But I have heard you talk about Henry Ford. Could we tell that story about the Henry Ford car? I'm going to give a quote from your TED Talk. Henry Ford said, my customers can have a car in any color that they want, as long as it's black. Yeah, it's, a, it's another great example. There's so many. And I, I do love the ones from history as well. I mean, Henry Ford has this reputation of being an amazing innovator with his team, of course. He didn't do it on his own. But he has this reputation for inventing the assembly line, for creating the first real urban car for the masses, as opposed to something that was a real luxury only for the wealthy. And so, okay, let's suppose he did that. And how did he do that? Well, he started with Model A and he kept tinkering and innovating and changing things until he got to Model T. And suddenly the Model T was a huge success and it started selling millions of units. It was a very popular thing. And then what happened? Well, the world kept changing around him. Uh, General Motors and others started creating uh, lower cost models, different colored models, and, and just the world keeps changing. No, no, no good idea will last forever. And so what happened, Henry Ford was so dug into the success of the Model T, you know, people would come into his office and say, excuse me, Mr. Ford, we should, we should uh, evolve. We should create different colored cars. We should create different lower cost things to compete with GM. And he famously said this thing, you know, it's, it's a well-known quote. My customers can have any color car they want as long as it's black. Basically, he went into denial. He refused to adapt. And why did he do this? It's not because he wasn't an innovative guy. We've already seen that he was. It wasn't because he was an uncreative guy or a bad leader or anything else. You can debate those points if you want. But it was because he's human, like all of us. And a simple fact of being human is that we have biases that guide us. We love the status quo. We get stuck in, in all of these sorts of assumptions. And so he got so wedded to this concept of the Model T that it was really, really hard to detach himself from it. And frankly, he almost uh, drove the company, no pun intended, into <laughs> bankruptcy. And it took his grandson, the next CEO, to actually revive the company and ensure that it's still alive until this day. And so the idea is that no matter how senior or creative or strong a leader you are, you're still a human being with these biases. And the first step to any creative process, frankly, is to be willing to doubt, to be willing to challenge the status quo, to be willing to, to challenge some of your assumptions. And the first step to that is to identify what they are, because so often they're hidden and implicit, as I hinted at before. But it's a beautiful story. And you must see this all the time, Alan, out there in the big world of business and some of the clients that you're 
you're working with, I mean, certainly in Canada and globally, I see it. We've just hired a director of innovation or whatever spin they want to put on that business card. Checkbox. We're now innovative. This world, I think, needs innovation and creativity more than it's ever needed it, yet having somebody with a business card that says that that's what they do is sometimes as far as it gets. So maybe you could comment on that or what your experiences have been. Yes. So many, so many pieces of what you said that, that ring true. You know, for starters, yes, I do see it all the time simply because all my clients are human. Uh, it's a, it's a funny thing to have to say that in this day and age, but with Gen AI and all the rest going on, you know, every organization that I'm aware of is still run by a human being with emotions and biases and so on. And so no matter how smart or, or, or innovative or well-paid by the way, they may be, they are still a human being with these biases. The reason it's so important there is plenty of data showing, but I'm just going to state it because I suspect you won't quibble with me, um, that there's more uncertainty and volatility in the world than ever before. We all feel that in terms of current events. We feel that in terms of the corporate world, uh, anything. So if we can accept that there's more volatility and uncertainty in the world, I mean, one way of proving that, um, there are studies that show, for example, that a company who's at the top of their sector, at the top of their industry, on average, they stay there less time than they used to. You know, uh, decades ago, they used to stay at the top for a certain amount of time on average. Now that time has shrunk. But this is just one way of, of proving what already feels obvious to many of us, that there's more volatility and uncertainty than ever before. So if we take that as true, what it means is that on average, the lifespan of a good idea is shorter than ever before. And if the lifespan of a good idea is shorter than ever before, it means that this tool set around thinking creatively is more important than ever before because we have to use it more frequently. We have to use it more often than ever before uh, for all of these perfectly logical reasons. And so it's not just me saying that creativity is more important than ever before. There's a very data-driven logic for why that is the case in a world that's changing more rapidly than ever. And you mentioned Gen AI. And I've got a quote from you on my wall, which is why I keep glancing up. If you don't start with doubt, that big D word that you've quoted a couple of times, technology will just get you to the wrong place faster. Would you talk to me about that? Because actually a couple of weeks ago, I was briefed by a client to do an innovation session very specifically on something, very specific topic, and really, really wants to use Gen AI in the process. It's the first time in my entire career that a client has specifically asked for that. And I honestly don't know what to say. Like, I understand your curiosity around it, and I share that, but I still somehow the magic and the chemistry of the human mind that knows more than it thinks it knows. Anyway, I'd love your views, Alan. Is, is this threatening what you do or is it helping what you do or do we just not know yet? First of all, thank you because I love that quote so much and I, I think I had almost forgotten it. I don't think I've said that in, in quite some years. I think I probably would have said it in the TED Talk 10 years ago or at Rotman 10 years ago or, or something like that. But my God, if it isn't more true now than ever before, it's a fantastic quote. And this business of doubt is, is probably the right place to start. You know, if one of the things I've claimed 
is that we have to start by, by doubting what we think we know, by being ready to look at things in fresh ways, by challenging our assumptions, acknowledging our biases, reformulating even the question we're asking. All of that is fair game. Fine. We start with doubt. We can tell more stories. I can give you more examples about what it means. But when it comes to technology, the interesting bit is, sure, it can help speed things up. The, the advent of Google search um, a couple of decades ago changed a lot of things. It's been fantastic for the most part. And I think Gen AI can help speed things up as well. The trick is to treat it as a tool, as, as a really speedy summer intern, or however you want to think about it. But remember that it's still on you to check the algorithm. So if and there's a couple of things inherent in all of that. So what do I mean by check the algorithm? Well, first of all, in the same way that I wouldn't just walk into a room, you know, when, when you read about an academic study about creativity and they say, all right, well, let's come up with as many possible uses as we can for this paperclip or this mug. And these people had more uses than those people and so on. Well, if I ask Gen AI, tell me as many possible uses as you can for a paperclip, certainly it'll come up with a really long list really quickly. But if I had a client who was a paperclip company that had a massive infinite supply of paperclips and wanted ideas for how to use them, I would not just walk in there and say, tell me how many uses you can come up with per paperclip. That's not a realistic situation. I would have to focus on the people involved that are going to go and implement these ideas and, and make them happen. I would focus on how to actually um, spark some of these ideas that are a fit with the capabilities of the organization. I would think about what's profitable. I would think about what's actually useful for society and making a difference for the world. You know, so there's all of these things that come into it, which is just to say that if for Gen AI, the real art is in what they call prompt architecture um, or, or, or prompt design, how you think about the questions you ask, because it's very easy to just garbage in, garbage out, ask a silly question, you'll really get a silly answer. In this case, if it's prompt engineering you're after, well, that's what I certainly and you and others have been doing as creativity facilitators for a long time. We are all about prompt engineering. We don't walk into a room and say, okay, people, give me some ideas, I'll write them down. No, we're not just a, a glorified uh, scribe. We say, all right, what are some of your existing assumptions that might need to change? How would Apple do this if they were here in our shoes? Oh, they would reinvent the whole ecosystem. How could that apply? What about if this customer were raving excitedly about us? What would they be raving about? What ideas would they come up with? Try on this hat, try on this perspective, whatever it is. All of these exercises, uh, you could say there's an infinite number of ways to run a brainstorm, but they're all the same because they're all about changing perspectives or trying analogies or, or some of these usual tricks. Well, that's prompt engineering. That's exactly the same as what you have to do with Gen AI. You have to ask it questions thoughtfully, carefully, if you want to have any chance of getting useful results. So there's a couple of different ways that one can think about integrating this into the process. You could have it operate completely in parallel, um, where let's say I go run a brainstorm with a bunch of humans like I always have. And separately, I have somebody who's better at prompt engineering than me do some stuff with Gen AI for a few hours. Well, here we came up with 100 ideas. Here we came up with 100 ideas. Yes, quicker, but it doesn't matter. And across those 100, there's probably overlap. We don't have 200 total, but we probably have more than either would have come up with alone. So that's great. We've increased the quantity. That's fine. That's an interesting experiment. 
What gets even more interesting, I had this workshop last week where I had a bit of an experiment where I had one person basically be the voice of Gen AI. And so while I asked the 15 humans in the room to come up with as many ideas as they can with this prompt or with this pretend to be this company, pretend to be this stakeholder, whatever exercises I did, we were wallpapering them with flip charts. At the end of every exercise, I would ask, okay, Kevin, what do you have to add? And so he had been working with Gen AI the whole time doing the same exercises, and he would just add three or four more to whatever the humans had come up with. And these were generally additive. They were not worse or better quality overall, but it was just a way, you know, maybe Gen AI had also come up with a bunch of the same things as the humans. Kevin didn't share those ones. They'd already been said. But by going to Gen AI last and inviting it uh, to contribute, uh, it was a good way for people to feel much less threatened by the technology and for it to be in some sense, you know, through Kevin, uh, just a, a participant. And today we have 16 participants instead of 15 in this brainstorm. And so, so this was one cool way. It's not, you know, a statistically significant or a scientific experiment. It's just a way of getting a broader range of ideas, which as we all know, you know, in the divergence process, you go for quantity. You want to just get a lot of things on the table. Well, now we've got a little bit more. So it, it's not so much, how would I say it? I don't think Gen AI is going to replace humans for all sorts of reasons that we can get into. But I think humans who use Gen AI effectively will be more, more productive, more will come up with, will be better at creativity than those who don't. And I think we're still in the experimentation phase of what it means to actually use it efficiently. But I think by constantly trying different ways and different tools like this, while still acknowledging that it's the humans who are going to have to get the job done. Anyway, that's that's my two cents on how it can uh, work out. And if you ask me again in six months, I'll probably have uh, have new ideas. <laughs> no, but you know what, Alan? I love that. Because first of all, Kevin puts a name to this gen AI thing. So it sort of brings it into the realm of human capacity in some way, and that it's less scary because you kind of envision Kevin. Kevin might have a face. And Kevin goes last. Kevin doesn't go first. Very, very smart, because I think people are scared of this, or people are excited about it because it can just replace any of that creative thinking they ever thought they ever had to have within their business. They'll just type in a question and boom, why would I ever need anybody to come in and help me? But that approach is is beautiful. You know, I will say uh, one more thing. Yes, please. Yes. There are academic studies already. It's still early days. But there are academic studies that show some things which I think will not surprise you, but I'm going to say them anyway, that Please. when they have run these sort of basic things, like come up with as many uses as you can for a mug or a paperclip, you know, those simple statistically measurable uh, things. Uh, outcome number one of these experiments is that Gen AI is faster. Well, we all know that. Outcome number two is that if you compare Gen AI and one individual, Gen AI usually comes up with a longer list a broader list. Okay, I can accept that. But if you compare Gen AI with a group, and most often our ideation happens in a group, it's actually not a, a broader list. Now, if you go and fiddle around with Gen AI and say, oh, but what if you take this perspective? Or what if you dial up the temperature and add more randomness to it? What if you do this and, and you keep pushing? Then maybe it can be. But in a, in a measured way, it will not come up with a broader set of ideas than a group. 
And then the last outcome that is coming from these experiments is that if you only rely on Gen AI, then over time, your creative muscles will probably atrophy a little bit, which seems quite intuitively obvious. And so all the more reason to use this as a, as a tool, as a fast-working summer intern, however you want to think about it, um, but, but not to just give it all over and say humans are done. I love it. The fast-working summer intern is perfect. And maybe his name is Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you a tiny story. I was hired to do a strat planning slash ideation. In other words, not sit in front of a tangle of Excel spreadsheets and look at how are we going to increase our sales 20% next year without any real process to it. So I was brought in New York uh, State to do this. And I worked with each of the guests beforehand to create the how might we statement to try and dive deep into their individual businesses. So I did that. And one of the guys after I sent him his crafted what, how might we statement, dropped it into AI and then sent me an email within two minutes and said, look, here are 17 things that Gen AI is thinking that I should do to address this how might we statement. I said, great. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to print that. Don't say anything to anybody. When we get in the live session, when the whole group is spending 15 or 20 minutes of concentrated time on your business, Let's see how many overlap. Of the 17, two. So this concept of group, humanity, chemistry, laughter, having fun, it just, that can't be replaced as far as I'm concerned. Quite right. I'm completely with you. So are you able to talk to us about work that you may have done with the World Economic Forum and United Nations, Alan? I mean, is that like top secret so we can't talk about it? But those two things stood out to me as, wow, you're a very famous guy. Well, I wouldn't go that far. But what I would say is that um, in some sense, it was a pleasure. And in another sense, some of those organizations make my typical corporate clients look lean and nimble in terms of their bureaucracy that they've got within mm-hmm. them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, <laughs> I shouldn't dig too deep into that. The, the point is one of the things that I did, for example, with the UN, and by the way, this was quite some years ago, uh, over a decade, mm-hmm. actually, it was even before the book came out. We were working with the UN development group on how can we enable the UN to work more effectively in developing countries? Because, you know, as you know, there are dozens of UN agencies, all of which have an important mission, you know, yes, We want to help children. We want to help AIDS patients. We want to help women. We want to help, you know, whatever. Everyone has a very specific mission for migrants and for food and for, you know, all of these sorts of things. And we might all have an office in Tanzania or in Pakistan or whatever the case may be. And how can we work more effectively together? And in the end, there's the uh, consultant answer of, well, these are the synergies you can gain and you can work more effectively and we could use our dollars more effectively. And that all of that is absolutely true. But then when you go and talk with the individuals there, um, and I'm not naming names of agencies or anything, but, you know, I was talking with one person and he said, well, I don't like collaborating. I'm from this agency and I don't like collaborating with a guy from that agency. And I said, Why? Um, and he said, oh, because we don't usually work well together. I said, why? What do you mean? What's, what's, 
what's behind that? And eventually, after a whole bunch more why, 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 what's, you know, it, it turns out that in 1977, when he was first starting out, somebody from that agency wouldn't let him borrow his phone. So in the end, and this was this was decades later, and this was informing how these two, because now he had worked his way up. He was the head of the agency in this particular country. Um, again, I'm oversimplifying, as I warned you, I always do. But in the end, we are human beings. And just because the data, the logic says we should behave a certain way, we should be more efficient, we should find these synergies, whatever the case may be, we are human beings with biases and with mental models. And every one of us will have different ways of overcoming them and making change happen. If, for example, let's say you have a loved one who is addicted to cigarettes and you want nothing more than to help this person quit smoking. And maybe this person says they want it too, but they've tried before and it's never happened and, and you want to help. I could imagine that if you are trying to convince this person to quit smoking, maybe you say, hey, if you quit smoking, you will save X thousand dollars every year. And for someone that might really make a light bulb go off and resonate with them and, and move the needle. For someone else, that might make no difference whatsoever. But you say, but did you know that on average, you'll have X extra years to spend with your grandchildren. You'll have a longer life. Oh, wow. And suddenly they'll, that, that'll work for them where the other argument did. And for this person, you'll be able to climb three flights of stairs without wheezing or whatever it is. And it's the same in the corporate world. It's the same in any organization. The argument that lands with the CEO or executive director may or may not be the same one that lands with the head of product or the head of manufacturing or the CFO or whatever the case may be. And it's not only on us to give the data and the strategy and the plan, but it's also on us to understand each individual's mental models as much as possible and help bring them along, help that light bulb go off, often individually for each person, because that's the way to actually make change happen in an organization. So that was one of the things I really learned from my work with, with the UN um, in those days. It, it was doing amazing work and it's still doing amazing work. And if I helped it become one modicum more efficient and thus help more people, then it was time well spent and I'm delighted. But I certainly learned a lot in terms of how to make change happen in organizations. And you're so right. Lots of light bulbs went off for me when you were saying that. How are we doing in the business world, in your estimation, around actually becoming more creative when we need it more than we've ever needed it? Are we more fearful than we've ever been really in, in the past because of everything going on in the world? So are you seeing some great examples of businesses being creative or leaders being creative? I am definitely seeing a lot of good examples, but I don't think I'm seeing enough of them. You know, I, I would always love to see more. And I think that we've got to de-average a little bit, you know, for me to say that things aren't as creative as they need to be. Well, maybe it's true on average. Maybe I'm, I'm this uh, wild eyed, naive optimist who thinks that we should think creatively about peace in the Middle East and 73 other things. But at the same time, there are pockets where there's just amazing things happening. When when you look at, uh, I take a few years ago, uh, the idea of getting COVID vaccines within a matter of months instead of five years or eight years or whatever it took before. This was a beautiful shift in creativity. Some of it, unfortunately, in my mind, got swallowed up by 
by by skeptics who who don't believe the science. And and in the end, I don't care if you want to take it, don't take it. It doesn't matter. But the science says that this thing did X, therefore it's amazing. And it did it much more quickly than ever before. But even just that mRNA business um, has so much potential for more, for more drugs, for more vaccines and all of these things to be developed at lightning speed. Now, are the regulators moving as quickly as the researchers? Perhaps not. And perhaps that's a fine thing. Perhaps they're right to be a little bit skeptical and so on. So that's just one example where it's really only the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's going to be possible from this. We're also seeing a lot of cool innovations. You know, decades ago, every industry was sort of a separate industry. You have the consumer goods industry and the automotive industry and banks and insurance companies, whatever you want. Now, all of these industries, all of these sectors are getting intertwined in new ways. You hear Detroit automakers being intertwined with Silicon Valley in terms of all of these things. You have insurance company startups trying new ways of underwriting and new ways of working with their customers. You have banks tied up with startups. You have all of these sorts of cross-sector synergies. In fact, the most obvious example is when Amazon went and bought a newspaper and a grocery store. Why would Amazon buy a grocery store? Well, we saw why in terms of prime benefits and all sorts of other things. But this this business of cross-sector collaboration is really, really interesting. So there's a lot of pockets of really, really cool things happening all over the place. And I think the more we can encourage that sort of thinking, even if some of the ideas themselves ultimately fail, that's fine. Uh, But I love when I see something interesting. Absolutely. Alan, I wondered about fear in your mind. Where does fear play when people are humans and stuck and not wanting to walk out of their boxes, their modules, their ways of thinking? Where does this play a role? Where does fear come in? I think it comes in in a lot of places and not not always with that word even. You know, people will, will not always say, I'm fearful, I'm scared, I, I'm petrified. Um, but they might say, well, let's let's form a committee to look at that. Or I'm not sure that the boss will like it. Or or let's check with legal. I don't know. Like there, there's plenty of ways to to kill an idea without explicitly saying, I'm fearful that it might not work. I'm fearful of taking a risk. And so the more we can encourage people to overcome that. Now, what does that actually mean, encouraging people to overcome that? It's easier said than done because especially in a large corporation, you know, well, I have my department and my role and my blinders on and and all the rest of it. And my job is to make sure that we are minimizing this particular issue. My job is to make sure that we're not taking any unnecessary risks. Well, actually, there's a certain logic that says that risk is a two-sided coin and, you know, if you ask people what words come to mind when they say risk and they say avoid, minimize, reduce, mitigate, all of these, but actually you can find opportunity in risk as well. You can exploit a risk. And this sometimes is, is one of the differences. You know, people say, oh, well, it's easy for startups to challenge the status quo. And it's true that sometimes these, these big ideas come from Zuckerberg in the dorm room or, or Hewlett and Packard in the garage or whatever you want. But it does not have to only be thus. I think for someone in a large organization also to have the courage to challenge the status quo, to find ways to overcome that fear and say, you know what, we're going to try these three things and probably one or two of them will fail. But that's 
okay. And if you can build that kind of culture in an organization, if I go back to pharma again, you know, there's a very natural situation where we have a whole portfolio of early stage research possibilities. And then they go to phase one trials and phase two and phase three, and a certain number of them will fail each way. And if you are the one who has shepherded this drug through and it fails at phase three, that is not a black mark on your career. Whereas it's just a normal part of the process. Whereas if in any other industry, you spend two, three years shepherding something through and then it fails, it might be a black mark on your career. And I think that's a shame. It's it's not a question of, of celebrating the kind of failure that happens when your kid doesn't study for a test. But if you're if you're celebrating and appreciating the kind of failure that happens when you have thoughtful decision-making processes and a portfolio of ideas and totally expect a certain proportion of them to fail, that to me is the best way. Like if you can build that kind of culture, then you're overcoming fear and you're allowing this business of experimentation and, and thoughtful risk-taking as well as risk mitigation uh, to take hold. Beautiful. Thank you. Excellent. So a signature question here for this podcast is, what does bravery mean to you, Alan? And I guess we could look at it as, like you just described, risked as a two-sided coin. Maybe you could give me an answer in the corporate world, in the large organizations that you work with in your profession. And maybe you could also give me a personal definition of bravery. Maybe that's the same thing. I don't know. But uh, what does bravery mean to you? To me, bravery means having the courage to try and escape from prison. And what do I mean by that? If we consider this prison of these mental models that bind us, well, this is the way we've always done it, or this is how everyone does it. And the, these are mental models that, that imprison us. They stop us from overcoming fear, from coming up with new ideas, from challenging the status quo, however you want to say it. And so when I say the bravery to, to try and escape from prison, it means the courage to, the, the bravery to, to stand up and walk away from those mental models, to think that just because we've always done it this way, just because everyone else does it this way, doesn't mean that we always have to. And it doesn't mean that every new idea will work, but it means the the, the courage to challenge the status quo and, and just try something new and be part of building that culture in an organization where you're empowering others to do the same. And it feels exciting, I think. Thank you for that, because it's beautiful. Escape from prison, that prison of the mental model that we carry around with us. It's exciting to work for an organization who thinks that way and who operates that way, rather than a culture, if you want, of fear where I might be reprimanded if this doesn't work. I certainly think so. And yes, it's harder for large organizations sometimes, especially with processes that have built over time, and this is the way we've always done it. But then it's even more exciting when you actually make it happen. And I have seen examples of large organizations that have this culture of empowering people at every level of the organization to challenge the status quo. And the reason it's so important, you know, you, you can't always tell when a certain idea is going to expire or become out of date. But I can tell you that nothing will last forever. And, and so if it's penicillin or the COVID vaccine or the, 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 the first iteration of Twitter or the Coca-Cola secret formula, you know, no good idea will last forever. But we don't know when it will end. And so this is why all, all we know is that the lifespan is getting shorter. So 
all we know is that we have to constantly be ready to doubt, be ready to reevaluate things, be ready to escape from that prison, be ready to challenge the status quo. Alan, are you working on another book? What's next for you in this in this world in terms of your work that you're doing with the Boston Consulting Group? What does the horizon look like for you? I have not been thinking about another book, mostly because I've just been uh, really enjoying my time seeing clients and, and just busy with a lot of things. But I've been thinking and writing a lot anyway, you know, various articles coming out uh, on this concept of uncertainty advantage, as we're calling it. And what do I mean by uncertainty advantage? As I said, there's more uncertainty than ever. But actually, everyone is facing that. All your competitors are certainly facing that too. And therefore, there's an advantage to be had in being better prepared than others for whatever lies ahead. It doesn't only mean being better at predicting it, though we can get sometimes better at, at foresight, but it means building resilience. It means experimenting with, with scenario planning or wargaming or some of these other um, simulations to test what might happen, to rehearse, to practice. What would I do if this happened? How? What would I do if the competitor did this? The more you can actually test things out, the more you can build this resilience advantage, uh, uncertainty advantage, as I'm getting at. In other words, being better prepared than others for whatever lies ahead. So there, there's a lot in there that I'm thinking and, and, and working on these days, which is quite related to my world of creativity, even if it's a little bit of a twist. I love it. Sticking your head in the sand, being the opposite idea, right? Well, we've always done it this way, and no, I, I won't. I won't. Um, the other example I've got up, which I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind just sharing with our audience, is the Bic Pen Company in France that you mentioned in your TED Talk. Can you tell that story about Bic pens? Because I just found that fascinating. I didn't know they were a French company until I actually watched your TED Talk. So I learned a lot on top of the fact that it's a fascinating story of innovation. It's a beautiful story. It's a classic story. I, I once, you know, a, a few years after the book came out, I said, you know what? I'm going to run this client workshop or be interviewed on this podcast without mentioning Bic. Because it was it was my go to story for so long. But since you've asked, dear Marilyn, I will happily I will happily. I'm sorry, I didn't realize it had a history of. Oh dear God, she's not asking me. <laughs> uh, I've moved beyond that now. I've embraced it thoroughly because it's such a beautiful, <laughs> elegant, simple Thank story. Um, uh, and and look, the idea is this: uh, they were founded after the Second World War in France. Bic, Le Baron Bic, Marcel Bic founded the company, and for 30 years they made only pens. So then they gather. Um, at an off-site or whatever and say, okay, everybody, we need some new ideas. We, and people say, oh, we can make a four-colored pen. You remember those things? And an erasable... Have one on my desk. Exactly. Yes. Um, we could make an erasable pen. We could make a pen that says Boston Consulting Group or, or Citibank or Sheraton or Marriott on it, whatever you want. Fine. All of those fine ideas. And then someone says, hey, what if we make razors? So the if you are thinking about being in that room, I mean, obviously, we know with hindsight that Bic shifted into making these razors and lighters and other cheap plastic disposable objects. But if you can actually imagine being in that room at that time, what would a reaction have been? People would have said, wow, that's ridiculous. That's not who we are. That's not our core competency. Uh, C'est pas possible. Whatever you want. They, they, they would have said anything because why? These are people sitting in the room who had spent five years, 10 years, 20 years saying, well, I work for a pen company because a pen company, this is the prison they were in. And 
By the way, Gillette was already making these cheap plastic razors. So it's not like it was a new invention that someone had just come up with. It was only new to BIC. And so as long as you have the box, the mental model of we are a pen company, it's a ridiculous idea. If you can change your mental model to say we are a plastic object company, then it's a fantastic idea. It's an obvious idea, but it's the same idea. The same idea went from being a ridiculous idea to a fantastic idea. Nothing changed about the idea. The only thing that changed is in your brain. One of your boxes, one of your mental models changed in order to enable that shift. So the takeaway from this is not only that BIC did very, very well with razors and lighters for many decades to come. They also experimented with a bunch of other things that didn't work well. But that's great. They have a culture of experimentation. That's fine. The real takeaway is that you can have a fantastically productive and successful brainstorm without a single new idea. New ideas are not required for creativity as long as you can challenge some existing ones. As long as you can challenge one or more of your existing ideas, you can be successful and come up with a lot of things. Your existing idea being, well, this is who we are in Big's case, or this is how we think about this type of customer, or this is how we think about this process flow, or this is how we think about our competition, whatever you want. If you can challenge one or more of your existing ideas, the results can be just as good as coming up with something. By the way, I have no objection to new ideas. They're most welcome. I'm just saying they're not required. Um, new ideas or changing existing ideas, both super powerful. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. I'm sorry to put you back on the BIC track. But All good. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, if there's new ideas, then the mental model, the boxes that you're confined within, as in BIC, well, great. You can have all the new ideas you want, but they aren't going anywhere. If you've got people who are like, no, 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 c'est pas possible, because there's their imprisonment inside their mental model. Alan, how can people find you, follow you, become raving fans of yours, buy your book, all those things? So this is the call out for how do we find out more about you and learn more about your amazing work? Thank you for asking. It's very easy to find me on LinkedIn. It's very easy to go to thinkinginnewboxes.com, which will take you to a list of a bunch of articles and TED Talk and, and all the other stuff. So thinkinginnewboxes.com or track me down on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And last question before we wrap this up, Alan, have the TED Talks people come knocking at your door? Because this uncertainty advantage, it sounds like a fantastic TED Talk to me. Are you are you looking at doing another one sometime soon? I would love to do that. I think that this concept of uncertainty advantage, I've been speaking about it in a bunch of places, not yet a TED Talk, but um, I think there's a lot there. Um, my original TED Talk about doubt and creativity when the book came out is still useful for a lot of brainstorming type situations, but I would uh, I would love another bite at the apple regarding uncertainty advantage. And it's certainly something I'm I'm uh, exploring with a lot of different audiences these days because it's a powerful way to, to think more expansively about the future. Thank you, Alan, so much. I've enjoyed this beyond words. It's so lovely to speak with you, and I'm so on board and so excited about the future when I can see it through your eyes. Well, I told you at the beginning I was a bit of a naive optimist when I think about the future, and I hope that uh, that kind of mindset will enable politicians and, and COP28 and, and all these others to actually move things in the right direction on, on so many fronts. But um, for me, it's a healthy way to be. And I'm really, really happy to reconnect with you as well. Thank you, Alan. Thank you so much for listening. 
For updates between episodes, I'd encourage you to join my mailing list, which you can do at either MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. At most once a month, at least once a quarter, you'll receive an update on the latest resources, topics, and information I've found either super helpful or amazingly impactful. That's it for now. See you next time.